0: This is First Person Drunk. It is brought to you by the public domain and by Whiskey. This is Danny's Own Story, Chapter 3. It is written by Don Marquis and read by Miles Tabor. Any errors that you hear are the fault of the preceding four elements. Well... All the lamons Hank laid on never done me any good. It seemed like I was just naturally cut out to have no success in life, and no amount of whaling could change it. Though Hank, he was faithful. Before I was twelve years old, the whole town had seen it, and they was not nothing else expected of me except not to be any good. That had its handy sides to it, too. There was lots of kids there that had to go to school, but Hank, he never would have let me done that if I had asked him, and I never asked it. And there was all lots of kids considerably bothered all the time with their parents and relations. They made them go to Sunday school and wash up regular all over on Sunday nights and put on shoes and stockings part of the time, even in the summer. And some of them had to ask to go in swimming, and the whole thing was a continuous trouble and privation to them. But there was not nothing predicted of me, and i done like it was predicted. Everybody loud from the start that Hank would have made trash out of me, even if I hadn't showed all the signs of being trash anyhow. And if they was devilment anywhere about that town, they all says, Danny, he done it. And like as not, I has. So I gets to be what you might call an outcast. All the kids whose folks ain't trash, their mothers tells them not to run with me no more which they done it all the more for that reason on the sly, and it makes me more important with them. But when I gets a little bigger, all that makes me feel kind of bad sometimes. It ain't so handy then for folks get to sayin' when I would come around, Danny, what do you want? And if I says nothing, they would say, well, then you get out of here which they needn't have been suspicion in nothing like they pretended they did, for I never stole nothing more than water millions and mush millions and such truck, and maybe now and then a chicken us kids used to roast in the woods on Sundays, and just as like it was one of Hank's hens then, which I figured I'd earned it. But Hank, he had streaks when he'd work me considerable hard. He'd never give me any money for it. He loafed a lot, too, and when he'd loaf, I'd loaf. But I did pick up right smart of handiness with tools around that there shop of his, and if he'd have ever used me right, I might have turned into a pretty fair blacksmith. But it wasn't no use trying to work for Hank. When I was about 15, times is right bad around the house for a spell, and Elmira is working pretty hard, and I thinks to myself, well, these folks has kind of brung you up and you ain't never done more than Hank made you do. Maybe you ought to stick to work a little more when there's a job in the shop, even if Hank don't. Which, I tried it for about two or three years, doing as much work around the shop as Hank done, and maybe more, but it was no use. One day, when I'm about 18, I see an awful plane I'll have to light out from there. There was a circus come to town that day. I says to Hank, Hank, they is a circus this afternoon and again tonight. So I has hearn, says Hank. Are you going to it, says I. I'm out, says Hank. And then again, I'm out. And I don't see as it's no concerns of your know-how. I know what he was going, though, Hank. He never missed a circus. Well, I says, they wasn't no harm to ask, was they? Well, you've asked it, ain't you, says Hank. Well then, says I. I'd like to go to that there circus myself. They ain't no use in me saying for you not to go, says Hank, for you would go anyhow. You always does go off when you was needed. But I ain't got no money, I says, and I was going to ask you could you spare me half a dollar. Great Jehooseaphat, says Hank, but I ain't, but ain't you getting stuck up. What's the matter of you crawling in under the tent like you always done? First thing I know, you'll be wanting a pair of these here yaller shoes and a stovepipe hat. No, says I. I ain't no dude, Hank, and you know it. But there's always things about a circus to spend money on, besides just the circus herself. There's the side show, for instance, and there's the grand concert afterward. I calculated I'd take them all in this year, the whole darn thing, just for once Hank, he looks at me like I'd asked it for a house and lot or a million dollars or something like that. But he don't say nothing. He just snorts. Hank, I says, I've been doing right smart work around the shop for two, three years now. If you wasn't loafing so much, you'd have noticed it more. And I ain't never asked for a cent of pay for it, nor you ain't worth no pay, says Hank. You ain't worth nothing but to eat vittles and wear out clothes. Well, I says, I figure I earned my vittles and a good deal more. And as far as clothes goes, I never had none but what Elmira made out in your own. Who brung you up? asked Hank. You done it, says I. And by your own say so, you done a darn poor job at it. You go to that there circus, says Hank a-flaring up, and I'll lambast you up to a inch of your life. So fur as handing out money for you to sling it to the dogs. I ain't no bank, and if I was, I ain't no idiot. But you just let me hear of you even going nigh that circus lot, and all the lamins you have ever got rolled into one won't be a measly little circumstance to what you will get. They ain't no leather-faced young upstart with weeping willow hail gonna throw up to me how I brung him up. That's gratitude for you, that is, says Hank. If it hadn't been for me giving you a home when I found you first, where would you have been now? Well, I says, I might have been a good deal better off. If you hadn't a took me in, the Alexanderses would have, and then I wouldn't have been kept out of school and growed up a ignoramus like you is. I never had no trouble keeping you away from school. I notice," says Hank with a snort. "This is the first I ever hearin' of you wantin' to go there, which was true in one way and a lie in another. I ain't never wanted to go till lately, but he'd kind of lambed me if I had a wanted to. He always said he would, and now I was too big and noted. Well, Hank, he never give me no money, so I watches my chance that afternoon and slips in under the tent, same as always, and I lays low under them green benches and wiggled through when I seen a good chance. The first person I seen was Hank. Of course, he seen me, and he shook his fist at me in a promising kind of way, and there wasn't no trouble figuring out what he meant. For a while, I didn't enjoy that circus to no extent, for I was thinking that if Hank tries to lick me for it, I'll fight him back this time, which I ain't never fitting back before much yet, for fear he'd pick up some iron around the shop and just naturally lay me cold with it. I got home before Hank did. It was nice sundown, and I was waiting in the door of the shop for Elmira to of Vittles is ready, and Hank come along. He didn't waste no time. He steps inside of the shop, and he takes down a strap, and he says, You come here, and you take off your shirt. But I just moves away. Hank, he runs in on me, and he swings his strap, I throwed up my arm, and it cut me across across the knuckles. I run in on him, and he dropped the strap and fetched me an open-handed smack plumb on the mouth that charred my head back and like to have busted it loose. Then I got right mad, and I run in on him again, and this time I got to him and wrestled with him. Well, sir, I never was so surprised in all my life before for I hadn't halt on him more than a minute before I seen I'm stronger than Hank is. I throwed him, and he hit the ground with considerable of a jar, and then I put my knee in the pit of his stomach and churned it a couple. And thinks to myself, what a fool I must have been for better than a year, because I might have done this any time. I got him by the ears, and I slammed his head into the gravel a few times, Him a-reaching for my throat and a-pounding me with his fists, but me a-taking the licks and keeping hold. And I had mighty contended time for a few minutes there on top of Hank, chuckling to myself, batting him one every now and then for luck, and trying to make him holler, it's enough. But Hank is stubborn. He won't holler. And pretty soon I thinks, what am I going to do? For Hank will be so mad when I let him up, he'll just naturally kill me without I kill him. And I was scared, because I don't want neither one of them things to happen. whilst I was thinking it over and getting scareder and scareder and banging Hank's head harder and harder, someone grabs me from behind. There was two of them. And one gets my collar and one gets the seat of my pants. And they drug me off in him. Hank, he gets up and then he sets down sudden on a horse block and wipes his face on his sleeve. Which there was considerable blood come onto the sleeve. I looks around to see who has hold of me, and it is two men. One of them looks about seven feet tall, on account uh, of a big plug hat and a long white linen duster, and has a beautiful red beard. In the road there is a big stout road wagon with a canopy top over it, pulled by two horses, and on the wagon box there is a strip of canvas which I couldn't read then what was wrote on the canvas, but I learnt later it said in big print, Sea Wash Indian Sagraw, nature's universal medicinal specific, discovered by Dr. Hartley L. Kirby among the aborigines of Oregon. On account of being so busy, neither Hank nor me had here in the wagon come along the road and stop. The big man in the plug hat, he says, or oh, they was words to that effect, just as serious. Why are you maulin' the aged gent? Well, says I, he needed it considerable. But, says he, still more solemn, the good book says to honor thy father and thy mother. Well, I says, maybe it does and maybe it doesn't. But he ain't my father no how and he ain't been getting no more than his comeuppance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, the big man remarks, very serious. Hank, he riz up then, and he says, Mister, be you a preacher, cause if you be you, the sooner you have drove on, the better for you. I got a grudge again, all preachers. That fella, he just looks Hank over calm and easy and slow before he answers and he wrinkles up his face like he never seen anything like Hank before. Then he fetches a kind of aggravating smile, and he says, Beneath a shaded chestnut tree, the village blacksmith stands. The smith, the pleasant soul, is he with waltz upon his hands. He stares at Hank hard and solemn and serious while he is saying that poetry at him. Hank fidgets and turns his eyes away but the feller touches him on the breast with his finger and makes him look at him my honest friend says the feller i am not a preacher not right now anyhow no my mission is spreading the glad tidings of good health look at me and he swells his chest up and keeps a hold can of Hank's eyes with his you behold before you the discoverer, manufacturer, and proprietor of seawash Indian sag nature's own remedy for Brat's disease, rheumatism, liver and kidney trouble, catar, consumption, bronchitis, ringworm, erysipelas, lung fever, typhoid, croup, dandruff, stomach trouble, dyspepsia, and there was a lot more of them. ''Well,'' says Hank, sort of backing up as the big man come nearer and nearer to him, just naturally bully-ragging him with them eyes. ''I got none of them Their complaints.'' The doctor, he kind of snarls, and he brings his hand down hard on Hank's shoulder, and he says, ''There are more things betwixt Dan and Beersheba than was ever dreamt of in thy sagacity, Romeo.'' Or oh, they was words to that effect. For well, that doctor was just plumb full of scripture quotations, and he sings out sudden, giving Hank a shove that nearly pushes him over. Man alive! He yells, "You don't know what disease you may have." Man is the strong man I've seen rejoicing in his strength at the dawn of day, cut down like the grass in the field before sunset. He says. Hank, he's trying to look the other way, but that doctor won't let his eyes wiggle away from his'n. He says very sharp, stick out your tongue. And Hank, he sticks her out. The doctor, he takes some glasses out in his pocket and puts them on, and he fetches a long look at her. Then he opens his mouth like he's going to say something and shuts it again like his feelings won't let him. He pushes his arm across Hank's shoulder, affectionate and sad. And then he turns his head away, like there was someone dead in the family. Finally, he says, I thought so. I saw it. I saw it in your eyes when I first drove up. I hope, he says, very mournful. I haven't come too late. Hank, he turns pale. I was getting sorry for Hank myself. I see now why I licked him so easy. Anyone could have told from that doctor's actions, Hank was as good as a dead man already. But Hank, he makes a big effort. and He says, Shucks, I'm 68 years old, doctor, and I ain't never had a sick day in my life. But he was awful uneasy, too. The doctor, he says to the fellow with him, Louie, bring me one of the sample size. Louis brung it, the doctor never taken his eyes off on Hank. He handed it to Hank, and he says, a Whiskey glass full three times a day, my friend, and there is a good chance for even you. I give it to you without money and without price. But what have I got? Asks Hank. You have spinal meningitis, says the doctor, never batting an eye. Will this here cure me? Says Hank. It'll cure anything, says the doctor. Hank, he says, shucks, again, but he took the bottle and he pulled the cork out and smelt it right thoughtful. And what them fellers had stopped at our place for was to have the shoe of the nigh hoss's off foot nailed on, which it was most ready to drop off. Hank, he done it for a regulation dollar-sized bottle and they drove off into the village. Right after supper, I goes downtown. They was in front of Smith's Palace Hotel. They was just starting up when I got there. Well, sir, that doctor was a sight. He didn't have his duster on to him, but his stovepipe hat was, and one of them long Prince Alfred coats nearly to his knees, and shiny shoes, but his vest was cut out holler, fur to show his biled shirt, and it was the pinkest shirt I ever seen. And in the middle of that, there was a diamond as big as Uncle Pat Hickey's win. What was one of the town sights? No, sir. There never was a man with more genuine fashionableness sticking out all over him than Dr. Kirby. He just fairly wallowed in it. I hadn't paid no particular attention to the other fellow with him when they stopped at our place, exceptin' to notice that he was kind of slim and black-haired and funny-complected. But I see now I order of looked closer, for I'll be dad-binged if he war not an injun. There he sat. Under that there gasoline lamp the wagon was all lit up with, with moccasins on, and beads and shells all over him, and the gaudiest turkey tail of feathers rainbowing down from his head you ever see, and a blanket around him that was gaudier than the feathers. And he shined and rattled every time he moved that wagon was a whole opera house to itself it was rolled out in front of smith's palace hotel without the horses the front part was filled with bottles of medicine the doctor he begun business by taking out a long brass horn and tooting on it there was about a dozen come but they was mostly boys then him and the engine picked up some banjos, and sung a comic song out loud and clear. And there was another dozen or so come, and they sung another song, and Pop Wilkins, he closed up the post office and come over, and the other two veterans of the Grand Army of the Republicans that always plays checkers in their nights come along with him. But it wasn't much of a crowd, and the doctor, he looked sort of worried. I had a good place, right near the hind wheel of the wagon, where he rested his foot occasional, and I seen what he was thinking. So, I says to him, Dr. Kirby, I guess the crowd is all gone to the circus again tonight, and all them fellers I seen there uh, all them fellers there seen I knowed him I guess so Rube he says to me, and they all laughed cause he called me Rube, and I felt kind of took down. then he lit in to tell about that injun medicine. First off, he told how he come to find out about it. It was the father of the engine what was with him had showed him, he said, and it was in the days of his youthfulness when he was wild and a cowboy on the plains of Oregon. Well, one night, he says, there was an awful fight on the plains of Oregon, wherever them is, and he got plugged full of bullet holes. And his horse ran away with him, and he was carried off, and the horse was going at a dead run, and the blood was running down onto the ground. And the wolves smelt the blood and took out after him, yipping and yowling something frightful to hear. And the horse he kicked out behind and killed the head wolf. And the others stopped to eat him up. And while they was eating him, the horse gained a quarter of a mile. But they ate him up and they was gaining again, for the smell of human blood was on the plains of Oregon, he says. And the sight of his mother's face when she asked him never to be a cowboy come to him in the moonlight. And he knowed that somehow all would yet be well. And then he must have fainted, and he knowed no more till he woke up in a tent on the plains of Oregon. And they was an old injun bending over him, and a beautiful injun maiden was feeling of his pulse, and they says to him, Paleface, take hope, for we will doctor you with Siwash Injun Sagraw, which is nature's own cure for all diseases. they done it. And he got, well, it had been a secret among them their engines for thousands and thousands of years, any engine that give away the secret was killed, and rubbed off the rolls of the tribe, and buried in disgrace upon the plains of Oregon. And the doctor was made a blood brother of the chief, and learnt the secret of that medicine. Finally, he got the chief to see as it wasn't Christian to hold back that their medicine from the world no longer, and the chief, His heart was softened, and he says to go. Go, my brother, he says, and give to the pale faces the medicine that has been kept secret for thousands and thousands of years among the sea wash on the plains of Oregon. And he went. It wasn't that he wanted to make no money out of that there medicine. He could have made all the money he wanted being a doctor in the regular way. But what he wanted was to spread the glad tidings of good health all over this fair land of iron, he says. Well, sir, he was a talker, that there doctor was. And he knowed more religious sayings and poetry along with it than any feller I ever heard. He goes on and he tells how awful sick people can manage to get and never know it and no one else ever suspicion it, and live along for years and years that-a-way, and all the time in danger of death. He says it makes him weep when he sees them poor, diluted fools going around and thinking they is well-men, talking and laughing and marrying and giving into marriage right on the edge of the grave. He sees dozens of them in every town he comes to, but they can't fool him, he says. He can tell at a glance who's got Bright's disease in their kidneys and who ain't. His own father, he says, was deathly sick for years and never knowed it, and the knowledge come on him sudden like, and he died. That was before Sea Wash Engine Sagraw was ever found out about. Doctor Kirby broke down and cried right there in the wagon when he thought of how his father might have been saved if he was only alive. Now that medicine was put up in bottle form, six for a five-dollar bill, so long as he was in town, and after that, two dollars for each bottle at the drug store. He unrolled a big chart, and the engine held it by that there uh, gasoline lamp so all could see turning the pages now and then. It was a map of a man's inside organs and digestive ornaments and things. They was red and blue, like each organ's own disease had turned it, and some of them was yellow, and there was a long string of diseases printed in black, hanging down from each organ's picture. I never knowed before there was so many diseases, nor yet so many things to have them in, Well, I was feeling pretty good when that show started, but the doc, he kept looking right at me every now and then when he talked and I couldn't keep my eyes off him. Does your heart beat fast when you exercise? He asks the crowd. Is your tongue coated after meals? Do your eyes leak when your nose is stopped up? Do you perspire under your armpits? Do you ever have a ringing in your ears? Does your stomach hurt you after meals? Does your back ever ache? Do you ever have pains in your legs? Do your eyes blur when you look at the sun? Are your teeth Does your hair come out when you comb it? Is your breath short when you walk upstairs? Do your feet swell in warm weather? Are there white spots on your fingernails? Do you draw your breath part of the time through one nostril and part of the time through the other? Do you ever have nightmare? Did your nose bleed easily when you were growing up? does your skin fester when scratched are your eyes gummy in the mornings then he says if you have any or all of these symptoms your blood is bad and your liver is wasting away well sir i seen I was in a bad way for one time or another, I'd had most of them, their signs and warnings, and I hadn't heeded them, and I had some of them yet. I begun to feel kind of sick, and looking at them organs and diseases didn't help me none either. The doctor, he lit out on another string of symptoms, and I had them too. Seems to me I had pretty not everything but fits. Kidney complaint and consumption both had a hold on me. It was about an even bet which would get me first. I kind of got to wondering which. I figured from what he said that I'd had consumption the longest while, but my kind of kidney trouble was an awful sly kind, and it was liable to jump in without no warning at all and just naturally wipe me out quick. So I sort of bet on the kidney trouble, but I seen I was a goner, and I forgive Hank all his orneriness, For a fella don't want to die holding grudges. Taking it the whole way through, that was about the best medicine show I ever seen. But they didn't sell much. All the people what had any money was to the circus again that night. So they sung some more songs and closed early and went into the hotel. That is chapter three. Of Danny's Own Story by Don Marquis, read by Miles Tabor with the assistance of Whiskey.